You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a longtime history buff and mob aficionado. Today's episode is going to be quite different from previous episodes in that we're bringing movie content into the fold for the first time, which I'm personally stoked about doing. Going forward, in addition to biographies, I plan to begin incorporating movie and TV-inspired content into this channel as a good way to mix things up from time to time. Uh, And of course, as a fan of the genre, uh, I I think we all realize that that movie and TV adaptations of the mob are uh, absolutely just paramount uh, to what it means to be a part of the genre. So before we begin, let me give you an idea of what to expect in these types of videos. Uh, In the case of today's video, I'll be reviewing only a single scene and providing commentary, uh, and the focus will be on providing my opinion, tidbits of information from the books these movies are based on, and some behind-the-scenes information, and so on and so forth. I've been inspired by channels like Vlogging Through History and Real History, uh, and have really enjoyed their format. My hope is to bring the same level of knowledge and information to the mob genre's most classic movies and TV shows over the course of time. And for today's episode, we'll be reviewing my favorite movie of all time, The Godfather. More specifically, we'll be breaking down the opening scene. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be watching and sharing my favorite movie with you. And I'm sure if you're interested in this genre, this movie is likely either near or at the top of your list as well. So hopefully you enjoy my commentary. And of course, don't forget to mash that subscribe button to help this channel continue to grow. I have appreciated all of the support uh, I've received thus far, including the very flattering uh, comments left on my YouTube videos uh, and the reviews, uh, of course, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, But all right. So without further ado, let's get started. Okay, so the first thing movie watchers will, of course, hear when beginning this movie is the iconic score along with the opening credits. These songs, while you may not exactly know the names, are instantly recognizable uh, and beautifully woven throughout the entire movie. Uh, The song playing during the opening credits is entitled The Godfather Waltz and was composed by Nino Rota, who who went on to uh, actually write 10 of the 12 songs you'll hear within the film including uh, the other popular song, which is entitled uh, Love Theme, but it's also known as Speak Softly Love. Uh, Nino Rota was a prolific Italian composer, uh, pianist, conductor, and academic who is best known for his film scores. And it's worth noting that the American Film Institute ranked Rota's score for The Godfather number five on their list of greatest film scores of all time. It's also worth noting that Francis Ford Coppola, the famous director of this movie, insisted that Mario Puzo, who of course wrote the book, had his name uh, included ahead of the movie name, which was not a standard practice at the time. Uh, In uh, in a foreword written for the book, The Annotated Godfather, The Complete Screenplay, Francis Ford Coppola says, I've pretty much said all I have to say about The Godfather, 
and giving credit where credit is due have made it clear in the past that Mario Puzo did the heavy lifting on this project, which is the reason his name appears before the title. My unique value to the film was gained due to my Italian-American upbringing and familiarity with New York Italians in the way that they spoke, their style, in particular ambiance, as well as their priorities. And of course, The Godfather was produced by Paramount Studios. And if you haven't started watching The Offer on Paramount Plus, I highly recommend it. Uh, not that it's entirely historically accurate. There are some things in the later episodes where I was kind of like, hmm, I don't think they got that exactly right from a timeline standpoint. Uh, but, but it will give you a window into the well-publicized difficulties that this movie had being made, ranging from significant, significant studio interference, uh, uh, disagreements over casting, and actual backdoor mafia involvement. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her never to dishonor her family. She found a boyfriend and an Italian. She went to the movies with him. She stayed out late. I didn't protest. So this original shot with the Undertaker, Bonacera, has its genesis, funny enough, from a place that you really wouldn't suspect. Uh, the original plan was to jump right into the wedding scene, but after asking a friend his opinion on the first few pages he'd written in the script, the friend suggested a stronger opening, citing the strong opening from the movie Patton, which of course Francis Ford Coppola had also recently directed. And as a result, you get uh, Coppola's choice to begin with a more striking scene of Bonacera, the undertaker, coming to the Don on the day of his daughter's wedding to ask a favor. And of course, the early feedback from the studio was that the scene was too dark. However, the darkness actually works in favor of setting the stage for the film in terms of the light and the dark, the underworld, and then the cuts to the wedding, which of, of course were much more light uh, and energetic. Uh, the cinematographer of the movie was a man named Gordon Willis, who was well known in the industry as the Prince of Darkness for his mastery of sparse lighting and accentuation of shadows, which made him famous and highly sought after in an era that leaned towards bright light and primary colors. Uh, Coppola said his goal was to paint this movie with darkness. And of course, this begins, uh, the movie begins the first scene uh, with the amazingly ironic line, I believe in America which speaks to the fact that this good man came to America and did well for himself. But in his time of need, the laws that he believed in, which were supposed to protect him, have not only failed him, but left him and his family in some degree of ruin. And it's for this reason that he comes before Don Corleone, who he believes is a person with enough power to solve his problems since the legitimate authorities have left him no recourse. months ago, he took her for a drive with another boyfriend. They made her drink whiskey, and then they tried to take advantage of her. She resisted. She kept her honor. So they beat her, 
like an animal. Love that. When I went to the hospital, her nose was broken. Her jaw was shattered, held together by wire. She couldn't even weep because of the pain. But I went. Why did I weep? She was the light of my life. Beautiful girl. Now she will never be beautiful again. And you can see for the first time in the frame, uh, the, the camera uh, which was a very advanced camera technique that they brought in just for this shot, Don Corleone uh, in silhouette, uh, listening to Bonacera. Uh, it's uh, uh, the actor who plays Bonacera, his name is Salvatore Corsito, had previously done some small theater work, but had not really done anything significant. It was discovered actually during an open call. Um, and he wasn't the only actor in this movie who was discovered uh, during an open call. Uh, and quite honestly, uh, you know, if you're you're learning about the making of this film, you'll find out that many of the actors from this film, with the exception of maybe James Caan or Marlon Brando, were relative unknowns and, and Coppola wanted it that way. Uh, interestingly enough, this is the open call process is also how Abe Bogota, who uh, actually would play Tessio and would go on to be quite famous, uh, was discovered as well. And I also want to pull it back to the to the book because this is a very poignant uh, poignant scene, and it's actually how the book begins. Uh, so in the book, the story begins with three scenes all being sort of interwoven together. Right, the first uh, story is that of Bonacera, who, as we find out, endured a terrible, terrible, uh, unimaginable situation in which his daughter was assaulted and really brutalized by two uh, well-to-do young men. So he, uh, when the book opens, he's standing you know, in a courtroom uh, as these two young men and their somewhat uh, affluent and rich parents stand defiantly in what and while ultimately the, uh, the boys are convicted, the judge suspends the sentence and they end up walking free. Uh, this of course puts Bonacera over the edge and he honestly nearly loses it right there in the courtroom and nearly physically attacks uh, and has to be restrained uh, from attacking these two young men, but ultimately resolves to get his justice by going to the man he ultimately actually fears uh, in Don Corleone. Uh, the other stories in the book are related to visits that you see interwoven throughout the rest of the wedding scene. Uh, one is, of course, that of famed singer Johnny Fontaine, whose tramp wife has essentially left him and whose career uh, quite honestly, has really gone down, gone down the tubes. The other is that of a, a local baker uh, whose daughter wants to marry the baker's apprentice Enzo, but needs help keeping Enzo from being repatriated back to Italy due to his status as a captured Italian soldier residing in the United States. And of course, all three of these short tales end with each person realizing that they need to see the man who can solve all of their problems and cure all of their ills. Uh, the man who can help people both big and small, the man with the connections, which is, of course, Don Vito Corleone. Sorry. I, I went to the police like a good American. 
these two boys were brought to trial. A judge sentenced them to three years in prison and suspend the sentence. Suspend the sentence? They went free that very day. I stood in the courtroom like a fool. And those two bastards, they smiled at me. Then I said to my wife, for justice, we must go to Don Corleone. Why did you go to the police? Why didn't you come to me first? What do you want from me? Tell me anything. But do what I beg you to do. What is that? Now, what they don't actually tell you in the movie, you kind of got it there um, with the line of questioning uh, from Vito, uh, and you get the subtle hints, uh, is that Don Corleone has left Bonacera to the last of the three uh, somewhat serious meetings, even though it's shown first in the film. Uh, this is because the Don is somewhat angry with Bonacera, who has essentially shunned him for most of their time knowing each other out of fear of being associated with a criminal element and having his good name be smirched or being forced to, to get involved himself. And of course, it's now ironic that he needs the Don to solve his problem uh, when he wouldn't previously give him his friendship, despite the fact that they were more than closely acquainted since Vito's wife was godmother to Bonacero's daughter. Uh, he didn't need a man like Vito until he did. But that is uh, really part of the essence of how the mafia worked in those days, both protecting the neighborhood from uh, higher powers that be, while at the same time, in reality, preying on the people that it protected. You can really see it on his face. Pure contempt. That I cannot do. And here we go. Uh, our first real shot of the great uh, Marlon Brando. Uh, of course, there was a lot of information out there on just how Paramount didn't want Brando in this picture and wouldn't take him on unless he essentially worked for free while also signing a waiver to essentially account for any costs associated with his poor behavior on set. Uh, if you don't know uh, kind of this, the, the status of Brando's career at the time. So Brando uh, at the time, and this is the, the 1960s, was somewhat of a box office poison. Uh, and he had had a string of box office failures, uh, including uh, One-Eyed Jacks and Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, and a lot of studios didn't want anything to do with him. So, of course, what does he go out and do? He only goes out and nails the role uh, of Don Corleone, which uh, takes his already legendary but fledgling career at that point and launches it into the stratosphere. He goes from legend to icon, right? Uh, and really, the interesting thing here is that uh, we touched on Johnny Fontaine earlier is that Brando's real life career was actually kind of similar to the movie career of Johnny Fontaine and that he was down and out, but then got back on top by landing the perfect role. 
Uh, and Brando, of course, rose to fame in the early 1950s for his roles in A Streetcar Named Desire in 1951, as well as On the Waterfront, which ironically is about union violence and corruption among longshoremen as a result of the mafia. He would go on uh, to be named Time Magazine's Time 100, the most important people of the 20th century. Uh, and of course, uh, as we as we kind of go on, uh, you'll see that he has a cat in his hand. Uh, and the cat is kind of the the actual. You see him right there. The cat is the scene stealer. And uh, the famous myth is that Marlon Brando is actually the one who picked up the cat. But if you listen to Coppola's director's commentary, Francis was actually the one who saw the cat running around the studio, picked it up and tossed it into Brando's lap. Uh, and Coppola had a had a habit of uh, kind of giving giving Brando props and, and, and sort of inspiration and kind of kind of working with his creativity. And of course, Brando, who loved animals, immediately took the cat and it kind of became an iconic part of the scene, though I'm sure you heard the purring. So technically speaking, the cat's purring really presented uh, some problems as it drowned out some of Brando's dialogue, which had to be uh, dubbed into the film during post-production. But let's be frank, uh, you never wanted my friendship. And, uh, you were afraid to be in my debt. I didn't want to get into trouble. I understand. You found paradise in America. Had a good trade, made a good living. Police protected you, and there were courts of law. You didn't need a friend like me. But uh, now you come to me and you say, I'm calling on and give me justice. But you don't ask for respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Instead, you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder. Money. She asked you for justice. That is not justice. Your daughter is still alive. Maybe to suffer then. She suffers. How much shall I pay? Ooh. Again, you can continue to see the contempt on the Don's face during that part of the scene. It's really, really cringeworthy. Uh, now, in this part of the book, you are also, you're not just uh, hearing the dialogue or, or listening to the dialogue, but you're watching the Don operate from the perspective of Tom Hagen, played by, of course, the great uh, Robert Duvall. When Bonacera, somewhat out of turn, pushes past the Don's dismissals, asks him to do murder, uh, and of course, as you saw, the greatest insult uh just occurred when he asked to pay him money uh to help him uh take his vengeance and the request is met by just about the coldest dismissal possible and sign that Tom Corleone was was deeply deeply offended when he gets up and walks away from his desk he in fact says it outright uh in a voice that according to the book was like cold death 
uh, in the movie also. This is one of the first times that you see uh, out, outside of just a few seconds ago that there are actually others in the room, that being Hagen and, and who visibly, visibly cringes in Sonny Corleone, uh, played again famously by James Caan, who's now shifting around nervously and turning from the window uh, to pay attention to the goings on in the room for the first time. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you'd come to me in friendship, then the scum that ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then he would become my, my enemies. And then they would fear you. Be my friend. Now, Don Corleone agrees to help Bonacera only when The Undertaker pledges his friendship, which in reality is Bonacera to some degree selling his soul to the devil to get what he wants. Uh, and now, of course, I know what you'll say. Calling the Don the devil uh, might not be the right way to characterize things, but when you consider that Bonacera is actually asking for murder uh, or, or some sort of a serious assault, uh, bodily harm. Now, again, I know his daughter was brutalized. Let's put that aside. The, the thing that he's asking comes with a price. Uh, and as Vito said, the price to be paid later on is a favor. And as the book says, Bonacera better be ready to come through when the Don needs him or he'll surely pay his own price. Uh, and we know the Don will eventually call in that favor. People, people that aren't going to be carried away. I mean, we're not murderers, in spite of what this undertaker said. So when it comes to giving this thing to Clemenza, the Don is, of course, ordering retaliation on the young men, but not outright murder, as he says. In turn, the reliable person that Clemenza assigns uh, to this task is actually Polly Gatto, who comes off as kind of a conniving weasel in the movie, but is actually a fairly respected soldier within the family. Uh, the, repri the reprisal actually happens off screen and you never actually get to see it. But if you read the book, you'd have a lot more respect for Polly, who sets up the two young punks and along with some help beats them systematically into a bloody pulp without actually killing them. So he takes them right up to the edge, puts them in the hospital for months. So this is the contrast that you have in this story. On one hand, a beautiful wedding and a beautiful family story featuring a principled and, respect, uh, and respected family patriarch. On the other hand, a crime boss ordering vicious reprisals and even murder to maintain his seat as the top mafiosi in the country. 
It's the exact contrast throughout this film that makes it what it is. And this plays a part, I think, in the media's fascination with the mob and the tendency to romanticize it. Get the wedding, of course, the beautiful music. Uh, and one of the things I want to draw back to, and I'm going to actually uh, draw this back as you can, uh, as you can see, kind of Sonny with his head uh, right in between. You see him right there. Uh, one small, almost a throwaway line in the in the book that I believe has a significant impact that they don't come out and say uh, until later in the movie is that the Don is looking for a successor and that he was highly highly disappointed in Sonny, his eldest son's lack of attention during this particular day, and I'm going to assume others. In fact, after this day, the Don believed that Sonny was truly, truly hopeless. Again, they didn't say that, and it was really hard to tell, uh, you know, from the from the actual acting in, in the script. Uh, Sonny uh, didn't want to be instructed, and the Don believed that he really actually couldn't function as the head of a head of a crime family. So what this means is that Vito would have to find someone else. After all, he's not immortal. Uh, and of course, uh, to close the opening scene, we get the the back and forth cuts between the wedding and the inner office shots of, of the Don. And of course, his consigliere, Tom Hagen, moving back and forth between celebrating Connie's wedding while also receiving the various serious group of guests being paraded into the office to make uh, the various requests. We'll skip it back. And of course, the Corleone family sets up to take the picture, but Vito ultimately squashes it as his youngest son, who is at the moment the black sheep of the family, he isn't present. Uh, and of course, this theme of Michael being different, uh, while also at the same time being his father's son, truly, uh, will carry through the rest of the movie in many ways. Uh, in this fact, uh, and this is just the whole theme of the movie and something I want you to think about. Uh, these family dynamics, the personalities and the temperaments, they all would have a massive, massive effect and a, and a massive consequence uh, to the Corleone family and a massive effect on the story. And when you ultimately really ponder it, the seeds of the ultimate destruction of the Corleone family have already been well laid before the first frame of the movie. Think about that. Uh, and we are just lucky that we get to see it play out cinematically. Uh, but if you think about the where this movie ends up, the seeds for the destruction have already been planted, and we'll get to see them, uh, of course, in the subsequent uh, subsequent scenes and throughout the rest of the movie, uh, as the Corleone family goes to war, Michael uh, becomes boss ultimately and descends into his own darkness. Anyways, uh, so this is where we're going to stop for today. Next time, we'll go ahead and pick it up uh, at the scene immediately after this, which is, of course, more of the wedding, more of the intercut meetings with Johnny Fontaine, the baker, so on and so forth. It's very beautiful. Uh, and we're just going to kind of uh, keep with the running commentary intersected with the actual scene uh, itself.
So as I've said, going forward, in addition to biographies, I'd love uh, to continue incorporating movie and TV inspired content into this channel is a good way just to mix things up from time to time. Uh, please let me know what you thought uh, in the comments below. If you like this format, if there's anything you would do differently, uh, I really, really have appreciated the support, especially if you're on YouTube, please let me know what you thought about the episode and please mash that subscribe button. Uh, really trying to grow this this audience. Would love to get it to the point where I can monetize it and take it uh, from a little more of a of a side hobby, which it is now, to something that um, that I'm able to just make a little bit of money on uh, to support what I'm paying to produce the show. Uh, nothing more. Not expecting to be rich, but just want to cover my costs uh, for producing the show. If you're listening to the audio version of the episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd rate the show in order to help it grow. Rate it on Apple Apple Podcasts. Leave me a review. Let me know what you think, good, bad, or ugly. Uh, and I'm not super active on the other platforms, but feel free to check out our website at the Members Only Podcast. I'm sorry, at www.membersonlypodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.